As we approach the new year, I have had it on my heart to ensure that you and I would grow in our understanding and our ability to live lives that would honor the Lord Jesus Christ. I know you want to do that. I know you want to do that. And I don't say that based on some mystical, ambiguous idea that I have because of some greater spiritual ability, but because I know you, most of you. When I think of our little church, I think of the reality that the Lord has, in fact, as He has said throughout the Scripture, He has set some apart, and that they've been set apart is not because they have earned having been set apart. It is because he has determined that in his sovereign will. And we as one little local body have the privilege to enjoy that reality. And what that would mean is that we would cultivate humility. No, no, no. Not that we would think more highly of ourselves having been set apart, but that we would think less of self. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah, you've been set apart to think less of yourself. How's that for being privileged? And so, as you and I grow to enjoy that, as we grow to understand that, as we grow to experience that in greater fullness, we will then have the privilege to be used of the Lord to draw others unto him. And ultimately, that's the Father's work. He says, no one comes, uh, Jesus says, no one comes unto me, lest the Father draw him. He also says in that same book, my sheep know my voice. Not because they resurrected themselves from a dead condition unto the ability to hear his voice, but because God caused them to hear his voice. Even Peter the Apostle in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says that you have been caused to be born again. And so we're privileged to be the undeserving blessed recipients of God's sovereign grace. And that's difficult when you really start thinking about all the details of that. But in a, a biblical framework we would look at the scripture and we would see quite clearly that God calls man to repent and believe in the gospel when man is not able to do that. That's a biblical mindset about what God has required of mankind. There's a very man-centered theology that would say that man is able to do what God has called him to do. And then if he thinks that way, if he looks at how he has responded to God's call and he is willing to say, well, I, I did that. I conjured that up. I developed the desire for that. The Lord kind of got the ball rolling, but I picked it up and ran with it. If I hadn't done that, then, you know, nothing would have ever come of it. See, then he can take some credit. But the one who acknowledges that the work of the Lord via the gospel is the work of the Lord is the one who is thankful then. He's humbled by that. And so as you think of your life in 2011 versus your life in 2012, I know you, like me, are probably saying, I'd like to do things better. I'd like to be more faithful to Christ. I think we ought to get out of the mindset of performing better because that's just that's works sanctification, which is very akin to works salvation. You don't want that. You don't want to perform better. You want to focus upon the Lord's better performance, his perfect performance. Perfect performance. His work on the cross is what you need. His resurrection, that's what you need. That's what I need. We need to meditate more diligently on what Christ accomplished. And then the natural response in our own lives will be to live faithfully. You really need to focus on one thing. I used to be a school principal and I would tell kids, you have one job in life and that's to obey uh, the two people sitting next to you. It's usually in my office, right? <laughs> For some problem that had happened in math class or whatever. You know, if, if you'll just obey these two people, you got it covered. That's your job for now. It's going to get more complicated. But ultimately for you and me, our job, our role in life, ultimately is to meditate on one reality, the gospel. To think about the gospel, to know the gospel, to be people whose lives reflect the gospel. 
as we do that, we will find ourselves happier, more effective in ministry, more useful. Well, from Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17, and I've put this in your notes, we read where Paul has said, look carefully then how you walk. It's an imperative, it's a command, he's displayed the gospel and he's explained it and he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, right? Don't, don't be unwise, but as wise. You want to be wise, you don't want to be unwise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. It's another way to say don't be unwise. But understand what the will of the Lord is. I don't have to take a show of hands to, uh, to know how many of you want to know what the Lord's will is. You, of course, want to know what the Lord's will is. <laughs> Here's how you do that. I'm going to give you that answer today. Well, I've already given it to you. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of your time. I had a football coach in college who used to say, maximize the minute. Maximize the minute. Don't waste a minute. Now, I have to say along with that, when you've wasted some minutes, be encouraged. You've got more coming. You don't know how many. And it might not be very many. In fact, it might not be any, right? But with regard to what does come, be faithful. Be encouraged. Whatever you've wasted is in the past. Whatever you have in the future is what you have to use. Be focused on that. And you will know what the, the will of the Lord is. Jonathan Edwards said, resolve. You know his 70 resolutions. You do well to read them on an annual basis. He was 19 years old, by the way. How does that make you feel? Yeah, me too. Uh, resolved never to lose one moment of time. He was 19 when he said that. Of course, he didn't have Xbox to deal with then either. Never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. The way John Piper would say it is, don't waste your life. Oh, don't waste your life. Are you wasting your life? Don't waste your life. Say, I wasted yesterday. Don't do it again. Don't waste today. All right? This morning, we'll consider how to make the best use of our time so that we may know what the will of the Lord is. That's really what this comes down to. It's so practical. I love the Bible. I love the Word of God. Paul tells us what to do, but almost always undergirds it with how and why. He gives you the details. He's not one of those parents that say, because I said so. I'm one of those parents, by the way, from time to time. Make the best use of your time with a schedule that includes, number one, a weekly structure with days and times. A schedule that includes days and times. That's genius, I know. Uh, so you're basically just talking about getting a sheet of paper. Start with Sunday. That's the first day of the week. And add times in there. It's really simple. And I'm going to start with whatever I'm going to start with in the morning. Maybe you, maybe you get up and read first thing in the morning. Maybe you shower first thing. Maybe you do something else. Put that on your schedule. And then fill the rest of the day out. Add enough time for sleep. Make sure that you've got a realistic schedule. You know, a schedule that doesn't include sleep is going to last not very long. Be realistic about it. But see, the more you become structured with things like this, the more you get into a rhythm, you get into a pattern, the more you will see the benefit of being disciplined. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, discipline yourself for godliness. Now, you can't discipline yourself for godliness apart from the gospel. It's impossible. You can discipline yourself, but it will only be for fleshly reasons and result in fleshly results. But to discipline yourself for what? For godliness. You want to be a godly person. Peter says in 2 Peter 1 um, that we have all things pertaining to life and godliness in the true knowledge of him. You want to be a godly person? You need, you need a Bible. You need people who have Bibles, right? You need to be involved in a church that loves the word. You need to have this structure, though, in your life. Some structure. This isn't 
know, this isn't inspired. I'm just giving you some things that I think are practical and helpful that I, that I think are gleaned from the scripture in terms of practical application. So number one, again, develop a schedule that includes a weekly structure with days and times. Get into a repetition. Get into a pattern. Get into a rhythm. Number two, the Lord's Day. Believe it or not, the Lord's Day should really be a more, pri- uh, more of a priority for you even than your own personal quiet time. Do you know that? The Lord set you apart for Revelation 1 verse 10, what the Apostle John refers to as the Lord's Day. Not the day of the Lord. The eschatological reality that the Lord, even as Brad referred to, is returning one day and it'll be a destructive day, ultimately. It'll be a good day for believers, it'll be a bad day for unbelievers. So we're not talking about the day of the Lord, we're talking about the Lord's day. That's why so frequently we talk about the Lord's day in our church. It's not wrong to call it Sunday, I prefer the Lord's day. Because it's the day that the Lord has set aside for the saints to worship. That's why we don't meet on Saturday. Nothing wrong with meeting on Saturday. According to Paul in the book of Colossians, that's not wrong. But we want to maintain that rich tradition that the church established, that the Lord established in the New Testament, that the Lord's day, Sunday, would be the day that we would gather, as I mentioned earlier, as we first got started, that we would exalt the Lord, we would edify each other. Sunday mornings is not about evangelism, contrary to what you might have heard. It's not. It shouldn't be. Sunday mornings is for the glory of Christ in teaching and in singing and for the edification of the saints. We gather to be equipped so that then we would go out and share the gospel with the lost. As I've told you many times, you'll never, ever, ever experience pressure to fill the empty chair next to you. Ever. I will only teach you what the scripture says about evangelism and we are deeply convinced that that is a lifestyle that's rooted in a hunger for exalting God, edifying the saints that then gives us the privilege and ability to go out and share the gospel with those who would hear it. To everyone who asks, right? 1 Peter 3, 15. Number three, rest in the Lord. I'm going to unfold that for you uh, quite a bit more as we go. But I want you to uh, think about what it is to rest in the Lord. Number four, family. Your schedule should include time devoted to your family. You say, Todd, I don't have a family. Well, yes, you do. Yes, you do. If you don't have a biological family, or if your biological family is on the other side of the country and somewhere that you can't interact on a regular basis, then we are your family. We're your family even if you have other family in town. But ultimately here I'm talking about your biological family. If your biological family is not in the area, then you need to set time aside somehow strategically for someone, some someones that you would regularly invest in. And this really goes hand in hand with the, the next one, number five. But before we get there, I want to remind you that in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians 6 verse 1 we have just a a very little snippet but very crystal clear expression of what Paul expects of families Ephesians 6 verse 1 children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right how silly would it be for us as parents to recite this verse to our kids if we ourselves are not adhering to verse uh, verses 4 and beyond. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And guys, this is not a browbeating. If you have kids and you've struggled with this, you've struggled uh, exhibiting the kind of lifestyle that uh, kids could follow, be encouraged. Today's a new day. January 1st, a new year. That's why we're doing this. We're ramping up for January 1, hoping to get into kind of a rhythm. Uh, But discipline your kids in the instruction of the Lord. It really means to be careful about you yourself living a life that's worthy of imitation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Imitate me as I imitate the Lord. I have four shadows in my house. (laughs) And I expect that one day um, they will grow up and reflect my character. Did I just say that out loud? That's a scary thing. But it's a privilege. 
And all of you, whether your parents, whether your kids are grown or not, you have a huge privilege. You have a huge opportunity to have impact on them. No, no matter what the stage in life is, be encouraged that today is a new day. Devote yourself to your family. Number five, discipleship slash spiritual gifts. Discipleship and spiritual gifts. You really should be setting aside some time for discipleship, which goes hand in hand with the use of your spiritual gifts. What are you doing in discipleship? You should be exercising your spiritual gifts in discipleship. You say, I am the worst mechanic in the world. I couldn't, you know, uh, I couldn't begin to put a spark plug in, anything like that. But what I've decided to do is disciple a young man, and we're going to do an auto mechanics class together. Not a good idea. <laughs> And that's just kind of a secular illustration. But the reality is that if your giftedness is not teaching, your primary giftedness is not teaching, or your primary giftedness is not uh, one of the other spiritual gifts, uh, um, perhaps um, if you're thinking that you want to be involved in a person's life who is having trouble learning to help others uh, in the, the gift of service, and that's not your primary giftedness, then that might not be the best thing to begin with. It might be better for you to disciple someone uh, who is uh, similarly gifted as yourself. Not to say that you have to do it that way. But look for those opportunities. Look for opportunities to disciple others in the area where you yourself are gifted. I think that's where the Lord will use you mostly. Although, for you to be, to, for you to be confident in Christ would be to be willing to disciple someone who's not similarly gifted as you. So be prepared for whatever the Lord has. Number six, Bible study. This is different from what we're going to talk about in terms of having a daily devotion, which is what I'm talking, back, talking about back there in number three, the rest in the Lord, learning to rest on a daily basis in the Lord. This is different. I think there ought to be a probably a weekly time where you're sitting down, especially as the, the months progress in our little church, where we're going to be in a book of the Bible. I'm going to be truly speaking expositionally through a passage, a few verses at a time. That's what you're used to. That's what we'll be doing soon. And so there probably would be much benefit for you to buy a couple of uh, study tools or to look online and find some. There's some great online study tools right now that are free. And so for you to have some little time throughout the week where you're carving out, you know, maybe it's just 20 minutes a week. Maybe it's 12 minutes. You're just starting with something. But it's different from your daily devotional life. You're really kind of pouring over what we're doing in the Scripture as a church. Probably a great way to start. Uh, our website is up. And on our website, uh, I've got a little blog on there now. And so when we get into a particular book of the Bible, we'll probably be basing that blog upon that book. And that'll be helpful you, for you. That should assist you in your efforts to understand that passage or those passages that we're looking at more closely on a weekly basis. Number seven, a financial budget. A financial budget. You really can't as you know, you, I don't have to tell you this, you can't really live your life with any degree of success in terms of being effectively involved in other people's lives with money unless you yourself have got some handle on it. Uh, Steve read to you this morning from 2 Corinthians 10, uh, 9. I'm going to refer back just to a few verses in verse 6. And as he mentioned, we've taught now through chapter 8. At some point, we'll be back into chapter 9. But I wanted him to read that passage because I think this area is maybe, maybe the area in most people's lives, I'm trying to qualify it very generically, maybe the area in maybe most people's lives where more difficulty arises. And in some cases, it's, um, it's insurmountable. It's to no fault of their own. In other cases, maybe there's been some irresponsibility. And so what do you do? You think of today as a new day. You thank the Lord that he's given you the privilege to start over, although there might be some baggage that you're having to deal with. As you start over, you can start over. And so here we go. And he talks about really the primary issue, and that's heart attitude. What do you do when you sit down to do your budget? Where do you start? I think this is the place to start. You start with a, with a sum, you know, whatever that is that's going to be coming in, or you hope is going to be coming in, and you start thinking about that in terms of what you ought to be thinking about it. 
really what it comes down to, having a right heart attitude about it. So he says, verse 9, verse 6, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. So to sit down and determine what you would give back to the Lord is to do that based upon a bountiful spirit, a bountiful heart attitude, recognizing the bountiful spirit with which the Lord has blessed you. Verse 7, let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart. You remember that we talked about that at length, not as the law has required that you give exactly 10%. You've heard that little phrase, Lord, now we're going to give back to you your tithes and our offerings. That is a terrible misunderstanding of the reality that God owns it all. The tithe was only a standard for uh, legal purposes in Old Testament Israel, and they gave far more than that. Standard really was more like 23%. In fact, that's what it was. That included their giving back to the assembly as well as their taxes. So the idea of giving exactly 10%, you got to give 10%, get that out of your head. Just stop thinking legalistically. Stop living under the burden of someone's manipulation who has used that figure to get you to line his pocketbook. It's not a biblical idea. It is a a framework for the Old Testament, but it is not a mandate in the New Testament. The mandate is what I just read to you as you have determined in your heart. Isn't that great? The pressure's off. It's off me. I don't have to manipulate you. I wouldn't. I won't. I can simply say to you, give as you determine in your heart. I love that. I love that freedom that the Lord has given us. And then he goes on, uh, not grudgingly. (laughs) You're not hanging on to every last penny, you know, fighting and scratching and clawing and weeping as you drop it into the plate. Or under compulsion, that's, that's manipulation from others who are making you feel compelled with external uh, pressure to give as he has determined you should give. And you know this, verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good need. See, that's the beauty of it all. You know that when you determine in your heart what to give, and it's a sacrifice, and you give bountifully, and you give non-grudgingly, and non, um, in a non-compelled fashion, but you, you give really beyond what you thought you could, but within reason, that's what the text goes on to say, the Lord's going to supply it. And that's how you can have that resolve that he calls us to further on down in the passage. And then he finishes in verse 15 and really puts it all in perspective. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So how do you give? You give in light of or in response to his gift of Christ to you, to the church, to mankind, that those who would repent and believe in the gospel would have eternal life via the the death and the the resurrection of Christ. So the beauty of that is that you can't, you not only can't outgive him, you can never repay him and you shouldn't try. Should never, ever, ever be about you repaying the Lord. The Lord's done so much for me. I got to I got I to gotta get moving. I got stuff I got to do. I got, oh, where's my money? I got to give him back some money because he's giving me all this. No, 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 no. You give out of joy knowing that the Lord's going to provide all that you need when you give faithfully. Well, number eight, work. should include your work. And some would say, well, I don't work. And I beg to differ, especially if you're a stay-at-home mom. You probably work as hard or harder than a lot of us. And... Um, so I want to ask you to think about this from the book of Colossians. In Colossians 3, as you think about your responsibility in the workplace um, and the difficulties that often come with that, because they do, right? Nobody works for a perfect boss. Nobody works for the most gracious boss uh, ever who has lived. Uh, unless, of course, you think rightly about this from Colossians 3, and starting with verse 22, where Paul says, 
slaves. And you say, wait a minute, he's talking about slaves and masters here. This was uh, terminology that was more commonly used for the employer-employee relationship in the New Testament era. So when you see that term, you ought to think about how it applies to you in your current work experience. And you say, yeah, that, that works. I'm a slave where I work. Well, that's not really how you should be thinking about it. Uh, but you should recognize that Paul is using terminology that's different from the terminology we use today. Today we would say, employees, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Listen closely. Listen carefully. This is just beautiful. Not with external service. That's not how you obey your boss with external service. You say, wait a minute, but I'm required to do things that take place externally. Yeah, but that's not where obedience takes place. I've fought this battle with more people than I can tell you with regard to what real obedience is. It's not what you do. It's what you think about who is requiring you to do it. And it's what you think about what you are doing. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That's where obedience takes place. It's a willingness to fear the Lord in the workplace, in the details of what you do, recognizing that your ultimate boss is the Lord himself. He goes on and says, whatever you do, do your work heartily. As what? As for the Lord. Rather than for men. See, that changes everything. You can get excited about going to work tomorrow, can't you? I won't go that far. but uh, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. In other words, there's a consequence for being lazy at work. There's a consequence for stealing from your boss. But the right heart attitude is not that you would want so much to please your boss. It's not a bad thing to want to please your boss, but ultimately to want to please the Lord. To fear the Lord and to do your work heartily for him. See, so as you include that little, that large time frame on your schedule for work. Don't just plug it in. Don't just put eight to five. As you put it on your schedule, thank the Lord for it. Thank the Lord for the privilege that you have to work heartily unto him, fearing him, knowing that he will give you the right heart attitude, that you'll think rightly about the blessing he's given you in your job. Number nine, on your little schedule, I think you should include meals. Why? Well, you have to eat. You can use those times where you eat for God's glory. And I eat by myself frequently these days. Kimberly's doing things with the boys, taking care of errands, doing a lot of things. And so I, for me, it's like, I just got to get it out of the way. I got I to gotta eat because I'm, you know, wait a minute, it's 2 o'clock, I'm hungry, I got to do something, so I eat something. I get back to the work that I got to be doing to prepare for Sunday and everything else I've got going on. But when I've got eating on my schedule and someone else is included, there's a huge opportunity for me to think of that as a time where I can minister to someone else. And maybe that's an opportunity you have. Maybe it isn't. But put it on there. It's a reality about your day. You're going to do it somewhere in the neighborhood of three times every day. I would recommend that you set aside a significant portion of time for eating don't forget about it. Be realistic in the development of your daily schedule so that your life can best reflect the Lord Jesus Christ as you use your time wisely, as you make the best use of your time for Him in 2012. Number 10, two to go here, supplementary reading. Uh, on our website, I think we have every page um, filled in with data except for the recommended reading, which we will have online by next Sunday. And when we do, you'll do well to go to that page and look for some supplemental reading. Uh, a book on humility would be a great thing to read in 2012. Maybe you just want to set a goal to read four books in 2012. Or maybe you're a fast reader. You're going to read, I don't know, five books. So you, you 
look at this list of books that I think you will find richly helpful. And maybe you want to start discipling someone by saying, hey, why don't we go through a book together? Choose a little short book, eight chapters. We'll go through that together and see where the Lord takes us. But become a reader. Become a reader. Many of you probably know this. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 12, we read, But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this passage quoted by people who are not readers. <laughs> excessive devotion. Appropriate devotion to reading is not wearying to the body. It cultivates godliness. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 13, while he's sitting in a cold, damp Roman prison cell, chained to the wall more, more likely, more than likely, he says, when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books especially the parchments. You need books. You don't just need your Bible. You really need books that will help you understand the Bible and how to live the Bible out faithfully. By the way, if you have an English translation of the Bible, you are significantly dependent upon other books even though you don't even know it. Uh, I remember a guy coming into a, a group I was teaching one time, and he, he angrily shook his Bible in the air. He said, all I need is the New American Standard Bible. And I said, why? Because it's all I need. Oh, good answer. So, but why the Bible? Well, because it's the Bible. Okay, so um, you don't need any other books. No, I don't need other books. And it's the New American Standard and only the New American Standard. And so we had a fairly lengthy discussion about that. And ultimately, somehow or another, he wasn't aware of the fact that the New American Standard is not simply what God gave us, kind of dropping it down via a parachute. Uh, the English translation that you hold in your hand is translated from Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, and somebody had to use books to do that work. There are plenty of other books used in the process if you have uh, con a concordance in your book in your Bible, in the back of your Bible. Also the maps. People were using books to put those maps in there. So, and the list goes on and on. But if you think that you only need your Bible, you're not, you're, that's not true because you're not only using your Bible. You're using a Bible that has been put together with the use of other tools called books. And the books that are accessible to you today are rich. Every now and then on my Facebook page, I'll put a little endorsement for uh, certain sales that are going on either with R.C. Sproul's ministry, Ligonier, or John Piper's ministry. Tim Challey's on his website a lot of times will endorse things like that, so I'll grab it and post it on my site. Why? Because you need books. You need books, and I do too. Number 11, I think it would be wise for you to include some exercise in your schedule. He said, but Paul says that uh, exercise profiteth little. That's right. It profiteth little, but it profiteth. <laughs> All right? So do it. Do something. You say, oh, I do every day. That walk to the refrigerator is so taxing on me that by the time I get there, I've got I to get renourished, you know? Uh, do something. It's going to help you cultivate a sharper mind. I know for me, uh, when I'm in better physical condition, I think more clearly. I, ha I don't have to sleep as much. My mind is sharper. I'm able to memorize better. All right. Quickly. Let's talk about what it means, at least in my mind, to rest in the Lord. So I've given you an acronym. It starts with the letter R, and we want to start with the word repentance. Repentance. This is a changing of the mind regarding one's sin. Agreeing with God with righteous Hatred. Yes, you are not only allowed to hate as a Christian, you are required to hate. With righteous hatred. You must have a righteous indignation for your sin. Now, I believe the best depiction of this in all the Bible is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 
So I've given you some other, did I put other passages down there for you? I gave you a few. In 2 Corinthians 7, let me just quickly, as I can, read to you what repentance really looks like. You see, I have a friend who um, has not really exhibited repentance. Here's how you can know. It's not just changed behavior, but changed behavior certainly comes with it. Paul talks uh, with such great emphasis on the need for those who are examining others with regard to whether or not they are repentant, uh, that they themselves would ensure their own repentance. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says in verse, I'll start in verse 8, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. So Paul was writing to them with regard to their irresponsibility. But he is acknowledging the fact that the letter initiated uh, or instilled a willingness on their part to engage in repentance. Verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. You can be sorry, and so can I, about things, and not really be repentant. You don't want to be the person who sweeps things under the rug and says, oh, that was just, that's in the past, I'm moving on. Uh, the past might have been five minutes ago. And so to think that somehow, that simply, simply because something is in the past, that it means you don't need to think about it is wrong. A person must engage in biblical repentance, and he explains what that looks like. Listen closely. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us, that you wouldn't have a substandard Christian life. That there wouldn't be things missing with regard to spiritual growth and effectiveness in the body. Verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. In other words, whatever regret existed is gone because change, legitimate change has taken place. There's much regret over sin, for sure. There's much regret over, uh, you know, the proverb says, as a, uh, a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his Folly. That's how we ought to think about the stupidity of our past. Uh, so he says the regret is gone. Why? Because you've, you've legitimately moved on. You're actually changed. And it led to salvation. That regret uh, that, it, that existed with the repentance is gone, but the repentance, repentance is still there. And that repentance led to legitimate salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Anybody can be sorry about whatever. But that sorrow in and of itself is not repentance. And it ultimately leads to spiritual death unless it is addressed rightly and legitimate biblical repentance is applied. Verse 11, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. This is what repentance looks like. Okay? And I would start with you, and I'll start with me, with regard to understanding whether or not it's actually taken place in somebody's life. Apply this to you first. It looks like this. For, uh, for behold, verse 11, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves. Your life is vindicated. Pe people can over a period of time say, no, no, no. That's the old guy. He's changed. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's true. But it's true in the past. I've known him. I've watched him. He's vindicated. He's worked for that vindication. What indignation? What's indignation? It's hatred. It's a hatred for the lifestyle you once lived. It's a recognition of the fact that it was unrighteous and God hated it. What fear? Well, this is simply the fear of the Lord. There is no wisdom. There's no man who is wise who does not fear the Lord. The Bible tells us that over and over and over. What longing? There's a deep interest. There's a lasting interest in the things of the Lord. What zeal? That's fervor. It's passion. It's excitement. He doesn't just yawn through everything that he experiences uh, with people with the Lord. He enjoys it with excitement. He looks forward to it. What avenging of wrong. And so there is a reversal of one's lifestyle. Whatever was wrong 
was addressed. It was corrected. Uh, in everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Now listen, they've already been told they were guilty. So he's not saying that they were innocent all the way back. He's saying you've changed. You've proven yourself to be innocent of what you once were guilty for. You have a different life when repentance has wrapped its arms around you and in, infected your life. Verse 12, so although, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. Your earnestness might be known in the sight of God. That's why you want people to be repentant. That's why you want you to be repentant. That's why you don't want to sweep things under the rug and just dress well and pretend that your lives are just great, right? You want sin to be exposed. Proverbs 28 verse 13 really helps us with this. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes, that's another word for hate, Turn your back on it. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. The Greek term for repent is metanoia. It means to have another mind. It's as if your mind of unrepentance has been replaced with a mind of repentance. It's a change of heart. It's a complete different internal direction. You now have a hunger for that which is right. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. He wouldn't have heard. He would intentionally stiff arm the person who prays asking for blessing while he himself is harboring sinful tendencies, sinful patterns. Where does repentance come from? It comes from the Lord. Acts 11.18, 2 Timothy 2.25 tells, tells us it's a gift. Repentance is a gift. The initial act of repentance in a believer's life, a new believer's life, is that first moment in which God gifts the person with a repentant heart. And then how does he engage in that? He pleads with the Lord continually to give him a hatred for his sin. Help, Lord, help me to forsake my sin. Help me to be willing to confess my sins, to agree with you that they are what they are, and to learn to forsake them, that my life would not be stalled out with no spiritual hope or direction or effectiveness. Jesus said, repent. He didn't say, ask Jesus into your heart. <laughs> right? He didn't say, make him the Lord and Savior of your life. <laughs> he never said that. He said, repent. You see the difference? In Russia, this is how they talk. Real Christians deal with the reality that repentance is what takes place in a person's heart when they become saved. Not this idea that you fill out a card, you walk an aisle, and you make a decision for Jesus, which is a silly idea. But the person who is, in fact, in Christ is a person who has repented. That was, that was the command of Jesus. That was his, those were the first words out of his mouth when he began to minister. Three years, three years of ministry devoted to this idea of repentance. So, you see some other passages that I hope will help you there. What are the consequences for disobeying this command? Well, I'll let you look at that in Hebrews 3 and Acts 8. I'll just give you a little bit of an idea from Acts 8. Peter essentially says to, to Simon, the magician, who has fooled some of the disciples into thinking that he was actually a believer, they baptized him. He says, may you perish with your, with your silver. Simon proved himself to be an unbeliever by wanting to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. Why would Simon want to do that? Because he didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't indwell him. So he wanted to buy that power. Well, letter E. Letter E. Exaltation. Exaltation. The second facet of living a restful or developing a restful prayer life, a devotional life with the Lord is exaltation. You, you must repent. You must get your heart right. You want the vessel to be clean. You want everything else involved in your devotional life to be right, to be good, to be effective. But if you're, you're trying to do that with a sinful heart, then you're going to stall out. Exaltation is to proclaim 
magnify, lift high, esteem, elevate, or worship. Psalm 34 verse 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. This is the call of the Christian. Your life, my life is going to be focused on the Lord. We're going to be thinking about the Lord throughout the day. We should be worshiping all day long, worshiping the Lord. Why is it important for me to develop a pattern of exaltation? Because you were created to exalt the Lord. Later you can read from Ephesians 1 and 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Why is it important for me to develop a better understanding of what exaltation is? To experience the joy of communion. John 4, verse 23, that joy of worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth but also to avoid the penalty of idolatry from Exodus 20, verse 17. The Lord will not ultimately and extensively allow idolatry. And so to think wrongly about the Lord, to worship anything else, is idolatry. To set something else in your vision uh, as your obsession, as your pursuit uh, to the demise of your pursuit of the Lord would in fact be idolatry and the Lord won't allow it not long term but here are four steps of exaltation that I think uh, you would do well to engage in every day so I've done everything I can possibly do to make this practical to make it helpful the only thing you need to supply is pen and paper All right. so number one sing the word of God sing the word of God. The psalmist says in Psalm 119 verse 172, let my tongue sing of your word for all your commandments are righteousness. We've got some other passages that will be helpful there for you and you've heard me talk about this a lot, the idea of us singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. See the worship service is not just about you and Jesus. It's about you and Jesus and the body. His body. He the head, you the body. We're not only worshiping Him, we're ministering one to another. We're teaching each other sound theology. We're thinking right doctrine about who He is and what He's called us to do when we sing to the Lord and to each other. I found this interesting in James 5, verse 13. James says, Is any one of you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. That ought to be your first response. Mine too. When we experience the joy of the Lord. Is to sing back to him. We're going to give you some helpful tools with that. uh, Over the next few weeks. That I think you're going to find a real blessing. Number two. Read the word. Read the word of God. You should be doing this on a daily basis. We're going to give you some annual Bible reading programs. That will help you get through the Bible in a year. If you want to accomplish that. Maybe you want to go to a little faster pace. We can provide that too. But you need to be in the word as do I every single day. Number three. Meditate on the word of God. Joshua 1 verse 8. Psalm 1. Great passages. Great passages for learning the wisdom that comes from the person who meditates on the word day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Growing up as a kid, I spent a lot of time on the river in a canoe. And it was not unusual for us to come upon a tree uh, whose roots were exposed significantly. But even that tree wouldn't budge. Why? Because those weren't the only roots. They went deep because they were fed regularly with water. There was no damaging that tree. There was no problem tying a rope to it and swinging it out into the river from it. It wasn't going to be a problem. Why? Because the deep, the, the roots ran deep in the same way that the roots of biblical thinking run deep in the person who meditates on the word day and night. Number four, memorize the word of God. I've got a few passages for you here. You might think of a few out of Psalm 119. Um, I have hid your word in my heart. That's memorization. I have hid your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against thee. That's why you want the word of God in your heart that you can draw upon it throughout the day. Well, next, supplication. Supplication. That's humbly and sincerely asking for something from someone who has the ability to provide it. 
Supplication is humbly and sincerely asking for something from someone who has the ability to provide it. Why should you ask for something from the Lord? It is the blessing and responsibility given to us by him. It's the blessing and responsibility given to us by him. It's not just a duty. It's a privilege for us to ask of the Lord. He desires to bless you. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord. And what will he do? He'll give you the desires of your heart. Now this isn't a recipe for winning the lottery. Right? (laughs) The person who delights himself in the Lord is the person whose heart is changed. God's desires then overtake his desires. They overshadow whatever ungodly desires he has. The person who delights in the Lord, he enjoys the Lord. Westminster Catechism says so plainly, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What a joy. Um, He receives glory when you cry out to him. He receives glory when he provides for you. And supplication is an expression of your trust in him. You believe that he can provide, so you ask him to provide. He has provided. You remember that he's provided. And so you call upon him with that memory, expecting that he will provide. You go to him with your needs, and he responds by supplying them. Well, thanksgiving, thanksgiving is a heartfelt and spoken expression of gratitude for someone and or for what someone has done or withheld. You ever thank the Lord for what he didn't provide, although you wanted it so much? I think we could all raise our hands and affirm that. What you have now is what you got instead of what you at one point wanted, and you thank the Lord, saying, Lord, thank you that you protected me from my own foolhardy pursuits. You ripped me out of that situation because I didn't have the spiritual wherewithal in the moment to do it. Thank you for caring for me. But also, of course, a heart of thanksgiving is a heart that expresses a warm and grateful attitude with regard to what the Lord has supplied. Now, why should you give thanks to God? Because of his name, who he is. You should give thanks to God because of his name. That's uh, frequently used in the Bible as an expression for who he is. When you see uh, the scripture referring to the name of the Lord. It's not, just, it's not just Yahweh. That's not the idea. It's what Yahweh represents. It's that he is the eternal one. He is ultimately the only eternal one in terms of eternity past. So we thank him that he is who he is. Psalm 30 verse 4 says, Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. We should all also thank God for his loving kindness, which is mercy, in parenthesis there, for his loving kindness, mercy, goodness, and righteousness. You ever thank the Lord for that reality? You ever thought about what it would be like if God were mostly perfect? If he were mostly righteous? You know, just a few flaws, but pretty good guy. Is that the kind of God you want to serve? Do you ever thank him that he's pure? Ezra 3 verse 11 says, They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. Psalm 7 verse 17, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Well, next, you and I should thank the Lord for sanctification. You should thank the Lord for your sanctification. You say, you know, I I just don't get it. I've got sin issues in my life. I can't seem to get over the hump. I can't seem to get to where I need to be. Have you spent much time meditating on, thinking about, thanking the Lord for the fact that you are more mature today than you were a year ago? There's an idea. Thank the Lord that he, in fact, sanctifies the one he saves. Those whom he saves, he will sanctify. You can count on it. Philippians 1 verse 6. He who began a good work will complete it. 
This has massive implications with regard to the doctrine of election. The person who is not experiencing sanctification should think about whether or not God began the work that he calls his life in Christ. What is a, was it a man-made effort? Was it something that he himself conjured up? Or was it, in fact, the thankful, humble response to what God accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection? There is no ultimately describing the massive difference between those two realities. You say, well, I, I chose the Lord. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. If you did, you chose the wrong Lord. If you chose Jesus, if you accepted Jesus, if you invited Jesus into your life, if you initiated the relationship, hear Jesus' words when he said in John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me. See how arrogant it sounds now for someone to say, I chose Jesus, when Jesus himself has said, no, you didn't. It's dishonest. It's disbelief in what the scripture says. You did not choose me. On the other hand, I chose you. In the same book where he says, my sheep hear my voice. All those, all those the Father has given unto me will come unto me, he says in John 6. And what will he do with them? He will sanctify them. Is there going to be an occasional spinning of the wheel spiritually? Absolutely. Or we wouldn't have Romans 7 where Paul says, why do I do what I don't want to do? Why do I not do what I want to do? But Paul doesn't leave us hanging. Thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. He will set everything straight in heaven, but in the meantime, as we focus on the Word, God sanctifies us person who focuses on the word and is still experiencing no sanctification should really rethink whether or not he knows the Lord. Romans 6 verse 17 says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and have been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You know who I uh, have frequently found to hate this doctrine uh, more than anyone else is those who don't want to live a righteous life. But the person who recognizes that God is producing that righteousness and that is encouraged with that increasing righteousness, the one who recognizes that God is producing in me a hunger for righteousness and a hatred for unrighteousness, that person will depend more greatly upon the Lord and will experience that sanctification because he started it. The Lord started it. Psalm 51 verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. That's sanctification. Restore to me the joy of your, get it? Your salvation, not my salvation. When did you receive your salvation? I didn't. I received the Lord's salvation. He caused me to receive it. And so I look at that and I say, Lord, thank you. Now work that out in me. Philippians 2 tells us to work out your salvation. To be devoted to the truths of the scripture that would in fact lead to a greater dependence upon him and a greater conformity to him. Well, next, uh, for, for creating you, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped one, didn't I? Because the upright and righteous want to, they want to, uh, do this. They want to be engaged in a, a mindset of uh, thanking the Lord. Uh, Psalm 140 verse 13 says, Surely the righteous will give thanks to your name. The upright will dwell in your presence. Thank Him for creating you. Psalm 139 verse 14, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. For Christian brothers and sisters, number of times Paul expresses great thanks for believers, the work that the Lord is doing in their lives. I think of Romans 1 verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. You might jot there 
2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. You and I should thank the Lord for the privilege to serve His body. Galatians 5, verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into another opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. It's a privilege. Thank the Lord for the certainty of effective evangelism. You can be certain that the Lord will save some. He guarantees he will. You can be thankful for everything always. How's that? <laughs> be thankful for everything always. That's Paul's command in Ephesians 5 verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. <clears throat> you should thank the Lord to overcome anxiety. You should thank the Lord to overcome anxiety. Philippians 4 verses 6 to 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with, what? Thanksgiving. Are you anxious? The solution is a thankful heart. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will comfort you. Here's another reason to give thanks. Because not giving thanks to God leads to futility. Listen to this. This is heavy. To futility and darkness of heart and is reflective of condemnation. I'll read that again. That's from Romans 1. To not give thanks to God leads to futility and darkness of heart and is reflective of condemnation. In Romans 1, 21, Paul says, For even though they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks. See, that's the, that's the premise. That's the heart attitude. It's a lack of thankfulness. It's a, a self-willfulness to believe that whatever I have, I've achieved, I've earned. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations. This is why there are some crazy ideas out there. This is where evolution comes from. People think silly things and they believe it. Why? Because they chose not to be thankful although they knew God. Doesn't mean that they knew him intimately. They knew him salvifically. But they knew him. They knew of him. But they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creator rather, uh, creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He goes on to explain the state of condemnation in which those live who have rejected the truth for a lie. They have exchanged the incorruptible for the corruptible. Well, next, you and I should be thankful because God the Son gives thanks for bread. Mark 8, verse 6, And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them. Well, my hope is that over the next two weeks in preparation for living a life of devotion to Jesus Christ in 2012, that this will be an exhilarating experience. Um, even as the scripture has said, if you will draw close to him, he will draw nigh unto you. If you will apply some of these practical principles that I believe are clearly pervasive throughout the scripture in terms of uh, the biblical data, the doctrinal issues, if you will apply your life to those, then I think the Lord, I'm convinced the Lord, will produce in you greater effectiveness in the body, greater effectiveness evangelistically, and a deeper happiness, a deeper joy, a deeper awareness of why you are alive, and how, the fact, how in fact the Lord will use you to produce His glory. Lord, we thank You for tremendous kindness that you have shown to us and we would ask Father that you would help us even now to live our lives in light of that kindness 
Help us to recognize that you have given to us the great privilege of resting in the joy of knowing you. You've called us to be Bible readers, but not only Bible readers, Bible students. Lord, we want our lives to reflect the truth of your word and would pray that it would. Pray that that would take place. We ask now, Lord, as we go to a time of singing and exalting you, that you would be pleased. Thank you for the privilege to start over. Thank you for the new year. Lord, I thank you for Mondays, the first day of the month, top of the hour, a new day. God, help us now to be thankful for what you have accomplished, acknowledging that you have accomplished it, but recognizing that we play a significant role in that. You've called us to be faithful. The commands of the scripture are there so that we would respond willfully and obedience to what you've called us to. Thank you, Lord, that you're so clear with those commands, but you're also so clear with the motive that lies underneath them. Help us now, Lord. Help us not to perform better. We don't want to do that. But help, help us, Lord, to recognize that you have called us to waste not one minute in exalting the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts, that he would be honored and we would experience the joy of walking faithfully with him, maximizing the minute. It's in his name we pray. Amen.